Again, as we continue this This Is Us series, today we focus on this spousal imagery or the church as bride. And one of the things I'm fascinated is, is in the grand scheme of things, I was always marveling at my father. He would watch movies and always kind of have a tendency of knowing what was coming next. He seemed to always know where the story was going before it completely laid itself out. And the reason is that most stories are, are basically the same. And one of my favorite plot lines, and the favorite plot line of many, is the story of the knight and the princess. The princess alone in the tower, or kidnapped from, by some violent, evil man, or wizard, or whatever else it may be, or even a dragon and held hostage, must be saved. And so the knight armors up and grabs his sword and shield and goes and saves the day. Now, we may not watch cartoons anymore, but most of the stories even adults watch in movies or television deal with this idea of a knight, a man who's trying to save the day, a man who's trying to free his princess, a boy meets girl kind of storyline. However, the older we've gotten, the more it becomes a thing of fairy tale and movie, and the more cynical we become because we no longer believe such things are possible as we did once as children. We don't believe in happy endings. We don't believe it works out in the end. We believe even the, the, the ending scene of the marriage of Ariel to her prince or whoever else it may be can only eventually lead to pain, heartache, sadness, and brokenness. Because we know better. Because we're older and wiser. But the reality is it's just because we've been hurt. Hurt time and time again by knights who failed to protect or to even go after the princess. Princesses who are so sick of men failing their duty that they just say, let me do it myself. I don't need anybody else. And so we have a generation of rampant individualism that doesn't understand this idea of marriage being the two becoming one. This union this partnership. Yet we still have this story we keep going back to. And I think the reason being is that story of the knight and the princess is written on our hearts. It's something we can't get away from. We stop believing because we've been hurt. But I believe God put it there because it's calling us into a relationship with Him and with each other. That though the fairy tale has been destroyed, though the fairy tale has been a failing in so many of our lives, it's still what God desires for us. Most of us have learned what a night looks like because of our fathers. For men, we watch our, our dads growing up, and either through their attitudes or through their negligence or even absence. We get an idea of what it means to be a father, and so often we repeat the sins of our own dads. Many men want to be a knight. They want to fight or they want to have the good looks or they want the fame. They want the feast. They want all the benefits and the pleasure of being the knight, the kingdom, the castle, and everything else. 
but they don't want to bleed like a knight. They don't want to shed their blood. And women learned what to look for by being wounded themselves, either from a father who was violent to them, physically, emotionally, spiritually, or a father who was negligent, never there. The reality is most of the deep-seated wounds of our hearts deal with this relationship of husband and wife and how we experience that in our own homes growing up, but even now then in our own adult lives. Where we've heard and been fed so many lies from the evil one. This most intimate relationship of marriage is the key to understanding God's love and desire for us. And so it's no surprise that the evil one, Satan himself, would attack it and undermine it and go after it. To convince us it's something unattainable, something that's not even good. And so we believe these lies. And the dysfunctional becomes normal and we just accept it as truth. This is all there is and it's just going to have to be this way. And we think to ourselves, this is a new phenomenon, but it goes back to the beginning of of time. This is always one of Satan's greatest attacks. He creates or he attacks the creation of family. Again and again. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have the perfect marriage in Eden. The perfect marriage. And the serpent goes after Eve. And Adam is negligent. He is right there watching, standing by, silent. He fails to protect her. He fails to watch over her. He fails to step between her and the serpent and tell that serpent, I'd rather die than let you get my bride. He fails her. And since then, there's a recurring theme in history. Knights who are afraid of dragons. And so Noah abandons his wife for a night of drunkenness that leads to him naked and ashamed in his tent. And Abraham lies about his own wife, Sarah, so he doesn't get hurt by the king of Egypt and allows his wife to go to the bedchambers of Egypt's king. And later has this thing with Hagar, the the chamber maiden, and has a child with her instead of trusting God's promise. David turns to this, this youthful woman on the, on the top of a roof because he's grown bored with his own wife. And history becomes this, this series of husbands who stopped acting like husbands. Wives who no longer felt their husbands adored them. And husbands who felt the turn of cold and rejection from their wives. And so even the way we talk about it makes marriage even seem more like a a curse than a blessing. It's always constantly portrayed as a place, marriage is a place where love goes to die and passion goes to grow cold. And so I've even heard it said, don't get married, Don't, don't let marriage destroy a good thing. And so we have a whole culture that wants all the benefits and pleasures without the commitment and the vows of saying, I will give everything for you. And part of the problem is 
Truthfully so, we've, we've grown so much to rely on spouses that we find ourselves constantly being disappointed or disappointing the other. And in the midst of this pain and in the midst of this heartache, Jesus offers life and healing and redemption. He tells us not to give up, not to say it's impossible, but to come to him and experience true joy. Because he, and he doesn't just say fix your marriage, he actually calls us to marriage with him. He is the knight, the groom, who doesn't just look the part, but spills out himself so that his bride has life. He refuses to allow her to spend a night in the bedchambers of another God and would rather die for his bride. His passionate love for us does not fade with time. It does not diminish. It does not go away. It does not become distracted by the beauty of youth. But it grows ever more radiant. He finds more joy, more delight in you as we hear from the prophet Isaiah. He calls you my delight. God delights in you even when you've never been told that before. You've never been told that you are worth fighting for. Because you've been subject to a a series of men rejecting you, neglecting you, hurting you. He does not abandon his, his bride to seek his own pleasure, but rather finds splendor in her. And while most of us in our vows said we would basically take a bullet for our wives, but hope that day never really comes, he welcomes it. He goes to the cross for her. He sacrifices everything for her. His wedding night is what seems like most a sign of death, seems to the world a sign of failure, when he is put upon the cross on Calvary. And many people see him as a martyr, that he died for for peace and for justice and to to help injustice be put to an end. What a wonderful sacrifice. And we say, no, it's so much more than that. It's on the cross at Calvary that he weds himself to the church, his bride. And he does it with joy. Not the joy of self-satisfaction. His wedding night is not one of self-gain. But his wedding night is one where he gives himself for his bride so fully that she may receive and bring life into this world. That we may become one with him. And it becomes then a story of redemption. He redeems love because he becomes true love. He redeems marriage because he becomes the true marriage to us, the church. And he dresses us in the beautiful garments of the bride in the waters of baptism. And he brings us before this altar to offer his very life to us that the two become one and beget new life. 
And it's through new life that even a husband and a wife can experience of bringing children into this world that redemption is seen. That there is hope in new life. There is joy in new life. It is not a curse. It is a blessing. And so Noah finds redemption through his son Shem. And it's Abraham that finds redemption with Sarah through their son Isaac. And it's David who finds redemption through Bathsheba with their son Solomon who builds the temple to give God all glory, honor, and praise. And it all comes through this relationship we have with Christ, which is more intimate than any relationship we experience on this earth. That he desires to unite himself to us so that we may become one with him. And we talk this way as we say, to become the body of of Christ. This groom is Jesus. And some of us think, wouldn't it be great to actually have a husband like that? You do. He's just not sitting next to you right now in the pew and you don't have your arm around him. He's Jesus. He's always Jesus. And if we idolize marriage, if we think our spouse is our God, we will be constantly disappointed. So often we think that relationship means we cut off all other relationships. Or we think to ourselves, if only I'm married, then I'll be happy. Such a notion will only disappoint. Because the wife needs Jesus more than she needs her spouse. And the husband needs Jesus more than he needs his wife. Because only as bride of Christ do we understand what true love is, what true sacrifice is, to look at the, the unfailing night and to rely on Him. We get into trouble when we impose our understanding and our flawed view of marriage on God. And we do the same thing. God, well, you're not doing anything for me, so I'm just going to take care of it myself. No, we trust him. We rely on him. Even when his way and his will confounds us. We trust him in all things. And so when we order our relationship right and allow his love for us to influence our own love for others, even in our own marriages then we can release our spouses from the tyranny of perfection. Think of how Jesus treats us, his spouse, as we constantly go to false idols. As we constantly neglect him. Does he cast us off? No, he embraces us more fully and offers us forgiveness and unconditional love and respect. Even when we haven't offered him anything. He offers himself fully even when we give nothing. He becomes the primary relationship in our lives. That's our calling. And this is why singleness becomes such a blessing. So often people that are single, we just, well, just, you know, either there's something wrong with them or they should just get married soon. We just cast them off. That's not the reality. Singleness is a blessing. Because it teaches the rest of us that there are more important relationships in life than having the physical touch of another. It teaches us that our relationship with Christ is more important than finding our acceptance in the embrace of another. 
It teaches us that we don't have to only be of value because we have a partner or a spouse. And on the other end of things, it teaches us that we don't have to be scared of marriage, thinking it will destroy us. But knowing that through it, Jesus can love us in other ways. So those who are single don't just rush out of it. Thinking that that will give you purpose. But in the same breath, don't wait until you're however old thinking that you'll find the perfect spouse or you'll make it perfect or you want to get life figured out first because you'll never, you'll never get life figured out. But you offer it all to Christ in prayer. Jesus doesn't do this to give us a barometer to measure our own relationships with, to tell us how to live a little bit better. He truly desires to marry you, and he does it with joy. And he calls us to a joyous relationship with him. He is filled with joy, like a groom on the steps of an altar, jumping off to run and meet his bride. And like a bride, we are radiant, sitting in the back, the doors opening and smiling and beaming and just overjoyed by the fact that we get to walk up here and have this relationship with Jesus, with our God, that we would delight in him as he delights in us, that we would find joy in him as he already finds joy in us. And so we celebrate. Today, we celebrate that we have a God who desires this intimate relationship with us, that he desires to fill us, that he desires to give us life, that he desires to become one with us, to have union with us, not just today, but into life eternal. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We stand as we confess together our faith.